Okay, welcome back. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Luke chapter 2. Um, if you're following along in the Version app, we're going to have all of the uh, verses there for you. We're going to continue today and do more of the Christmas story uh, here at the beginning of June. In my office, by the way, that's like 200,000 degrees up here because we live at the top of our apartment building and all the heat rises and I can't uh, uh, open any windows because... Uh, if I do, you'll hear the, all the traffic. We live on a busy street where the, the one bus goes down our street. And so, um, yeah, we're going to do Christmas here in the middle of the hottest week of the year. So let me just open this up. Oh, yeah, that's why I have the Christmas fire here for you since we're doing the Christmas story. Make it feel like Christmas. You can pretend it's December. Um, let me just open this up in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the way that your word speaks powerfully to your people. And... Um, I just pray that you would help us see beyond sort of our preconceived ideas about Christmas and that sort of stuff and help us to see what really happened here um, in this passage and with the incarnation. And uh, I just pray that you would speak to your people today. So we pray this in your name. Amen. So all year long, I listen to Handel's Messiah. I don't know if you've heard Handel's Messiah. If you haven't, go find it on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. Um, it's pretty phenomenal. And I actually have a few different versions of it on vinyl that I bought over at Amoeba on Haight Street. And I listen to it all year long. It's pretty fantastic. But also what I do every year around Christmas time, uh, Melissa and I go to Handel's Messiah at the symphony, at Davies Symphony Hall. And uh, every year I go and I think, man, this music is amazing. It's probably the greatest, uh, in my opinion, the greatest music ever written. Um, but I think how odd it is that this mostly secular group of people are singing these songs and playing this music that's all about the life of Jesus and uh, the birth and the life and the death and resurrection. And uh, so many folks, it's interesting to me, that sort of that play, right, is so many folks in our country celebrate Christmas and talk about Christmas, and it's kind of one of the big overlap. It's our biggest holiday as a nation, but also it's one of our bigger holidays uh, in the Christian faith. And so many people, uh, especially in America, know a little bit about the Christmas story, right? It's the story of when Santa was born in Bethlehem or something like that, right? Um, no, anyway, it's the uh, it's the story of when Jesus was born and the incarnation is what we talked about. We talked big, heavy theological stuff last week. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, but we're going to do it by reading the biblical narrative sort of bit by bit. So last week I read the passage and then we talked about the theological side of it, but we didn't really walk through the passage. So what we're going to try to do today is walk through this passage, but we're going to do it and try to take the Christmas card image that we have of the Christmas story and put that off to the side. And we're just going to look at this. What does the text actually say? What's the historical stuff? So we'll begin um, with verses. We're going to read uh, 2, 1 through uh, 20. And we'll begin here just with the first two verses. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor uh, of Syria. So if you remember the first uh, sermon we did in Luke on our opening Sunday down at Powell Street, uh, we talked all about how the Bible, especially Luke's book here, is rooted in history. And Luke was an investigative reporter. And what he's trying to do here is he's writing this book for Theophilus, who was some sort of a rich 
patron of his or something. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but uh, somebody important probably. And Luke was writing down the gospel story for him and the story of Jesus's life. And he intends to do it by rooting this in real history. So most fairy tales start like this, once upon a time. You know, once upon a time in a land far, far away or whatever, you know, or a long time ago, what is it, in a galaxy far, far away, right? That's how fake stories start. Uh, Real stories start like this with these historical figures. So the first one, he's trying to root this in the time of these historical figures. So the first one is this guy. It says when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, this is a guy that we know from history outside of biblical sources. Uh, There is a small hiccup here with the timing. He was governor of uh, Syria a little bit later. Now there's a handful of possible solutions about maybe he was governor twice. There's a whole bunch of different options, all of which would make sense. Uh, Academics have been looking into this this sort of issue for years uh, now, and this really isn't the time or place to get into what are all the different options. But basically, this we can say this was a real guy, and he really was the governor uh, in this area, maybe more than once. Maybe he was like a vice governor at one point kind of a thing. Um, But anyway, so he's the first guy we read about. The second guy we read about is Caesar Augustus. Um, And him we know a lot more about. So here's the story. If you don't know the story, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, you know about Caesar, right? Uh, Julius Caesar was in general, and he took over Rome, basically, and sort of made himself the unofficial emperor of Rome. And then on uh, March 15th in 44 BC, I think it was, I didn't write that date down, but I think I have that right. March 15th, 44 BC, uh, he walked into the Senate and all the senators stabbed him, including uh, his friend Brutus. And you probably know about this, I think, from the Shakespeare play, too, right? A lot of this uh, comes from that play. But anyway, And so Caesar died in 44 BC. And although Caesar had had a son with uh, Cleopatra, uh, that son was not an official heir. Um, He was an illegitimate son. So Caesar's heir was his nephew, uh, this guy named Octavian. And after years and years of a long, uh, sort of a lengthy power struggle uh, and armies defeating each other and a whole bunch of different political, you know, all this different political intrigue, um, in 31 BC, uh, Octavian defeated Antony from, you know, Antony and Cleopatra um, and in Egypt, and they killed themselves, and that officially cemented his power as the Roman emperor. So two years later, the Roman Senate officially declared Octavian the first Roman emperor, and it sort of marked the end of the Roman Republic. Now, Octavian, or Caesar Augustus is what he became, uh, he reigned until his death, I'm at the age of 76, uh, 76 in AD 14. And on his deathbed, he made a comment, like while he was dying, they were sort of asking him about himself or something. And he made this comment about how he found Rome a brick and he left her marble, right? Uh, was, is that what it says? Yeah, he found Rome brick and left her marble. And that's actually mostly true. He was a pretty halfway decent administrator. He built roads and infrastructure, uh, he was that this strong administrator after he was brutal and he grabbed power. He got a lot done. And the things that he got done actually worked out well for Paul and some of these Christians who came along later and took advantage of those roads and the system uh, of travel that he created, basically. And so Luke is specifically rooting this story in that time, right? He's saying when Caesar Augustus was the emperor is when this happened. Now, I think the mention, though, of Augustus here isn't just about history. Augustus made this human decree that all this, the world should be registered, and that's like, you know, all over the Roman world should be registered. And there was, on the one level, there's a human decree here. But what Luke is saying is behind it all, there was God moving history. And so 
Caesar makes this decree that all these people are uprooted and all this stuff, but really all of it was happening so that these two peasants would be in Bethlehem at the time of the birth of their firstborn son. So let's keep going. Verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So what was the point of the census? Why did Augustus call for the census? Well, the point was taxes. So according to um, uh, Justin Martyr, who was around a little bit later, I think in the middle of the second century, uh, he he talked about this, and he said that basically um, these emperors— um, would do these uh, have this census taken so that they could know who to tax and get an accurate count for taxes. And Justin Martyr, what he says is that this census that Luke talks about here was the records of it were still around in the middle of the second century. And so we don't actually have any record of this census today, but we know that taking a census like this was pretty common, pretty standard stuff. They did it every few years. And there are some records of other ones of these that survived, uh, even though this one didn't. So the story in the first century world makes a lot of sense. This was something that happened all the time. All right, so keep going. Verses four and five. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So again, um, Luke brings up this idea that he's brought up several times already up to this point, that Jesus is coming from the line of David. And it's that story from 2 Samuel 7 that I've already talked about a few times, so I won't tell it again. But that the promised king was going to come from the line of David. And uh, Jesus being that king is a huge part of the book of Luke. And so now here's uh, our mention of Joseph, one of our first mentions of Joseph in this book. Um, he was from that family. He was part of the line of David. And Jesus, as his, uh, you know, his heir, would be uh, also part of that line. And so Luke also mentions, though, this is interesting, that Mary went with him to travel up to, up is means up the mountain. Um, they're actually traveling south. But from um, Nazareth to Bethlehem, Mary goes with him. And that's an interesting detail. And one commentator pointed this out, that Uh, she probably didn't have to go. And Joseph could have just showed up and said, yes, my wife in, uh, you know, uh, Nazareth, and we have a son on the way, and, you know, taken the census like that, been a part of it, and then gone home. But he brought his wife probably, or his betrothed, almost wife, like they're engaged, uh, because he probably didn't want to leave her behind to have the baby. And uh, because I'm guessing things were pretty rough in Nazareth because they were not married yet, and she now is almost... um, Uh, nine months pregnant. All right, keep going. Verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. All right, so this is where things get interesting. I'll tell you, there was a, a, this sort of a, a book. It was called the Proto Evangelium or which means like the the gospel of James, right? This book, it was called the gospel of James, and it was written a long time after all of this stuff happened. And James the apostle actually had nothing to do with it. It's part of what we call the apocryphal gospels. And this book is full of all kinds of imaginative details. And uh, a lot of what people believe about Christmas comes from this book. There's a whole, the whole third part of this book uh, deals with uh, the birth narrative. And in that story, Mary has the baby, uh, I think by herself or with a, a, maybe with a midwife, but uh, in a cave just outside of Bethlehem. I think maybe the midwife shows up right after she has the baby. Um, in the story, Zachariah was killed for defending babies from Herod. There's a lot of stuff in this uh, book that's just sort of a source 
of legend. And a lot of what people, the image in the medieval times that people had about Christmas actually came from this book and not from the book of Luke. Uh, but there are other areas where we get some of these images from, these Christmas card images. Another is just church history. Over the years and years, layers and layers and layers have been added on to this Christmas story. Like think about some of the stuff, right? Uh, Mary was, every picture you see of Mary coming into Bethlehem, they're getting there at night. Mary is riding, even though people didn't really travel at night. Uh, Mary rode a donkey next to Joseph. They walked into Bethlehem uh, in the middle of the night, knocked on the door to the hotel like a Motel 6. The innkeeper, right, he opens the door a crack. Ah, we've got no room, and he sends them away. And Joseph says, but my wife is pregnant. And he says, I don't care, and he slams the door. And so then they wander around until they find a cave in some stories. In some, it's a barn where they had the baby. Um, and then the shepherds and the three wise men show up that night, um, and they're all. Then they all gather around the wise men, the shepherds, Mary, Joseph, the baby, the animals, uh, to take a Christmas card picture. Right. Well, spoilers. Right. Let's talk about this. It. The text doesn't really say anything about a donkey. They probably walked. Uh, Luke doesn't mention the wise men at all. Matthew does, and he never actually says there were three wise men. That comes from the number of presents. Uh, they probably showed up months or even a year. Uh, later in Bethlehem. So Mary and Joseph probably stayed in Bethlehem for a while because they had family there. Um, and I'm guessing, I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing because things there were a little more calm than they were back in Nazareth. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions here. So what did happen? What was this scene really like? Well, first, we have to understand ancient Near East culture. This culture's predominant value, the most important value in this culture was hospitality. And the idea that Mary would be forced to have a baby alone in a barn is completely foreign to anybody reading this book in the first century. If that had happened, it would have brought a great amount of shame to the entire town. So let's take a look at what actually happened. First, let's talk about where she had the baby. Um, houses in the, well, I'll say in the, in this time, in villages like this, only very wealthy people had barns. Barns were not something that a lot of people had. The stables, kind of the idea, were a, a building that you would build that only animals would live in. That's a lot of money to spend on something like that. So the way it worked was houses in these days were in these villages were built on a, like a slope, a very gentle slope. And they had one big room. Uh, in where the family ate, slept, lived, like it was, you know, the family room, right? They had one room. And I actually have a picture here that I'll put in the slides in a minute, right? Right there somewhere. Um, anyway, and the family did everything uh, in this room. And uh, the slope would come down is like a big rectangle. And then at the bottom side of the room, there would be a separate sort of a cutout in the room where they would bring the animals in at night to protect them from thieves and to protect them from uh, other animals that would eat them. And <clears throat> usually a family would have some sort of like a like a mule or a donkey or, a, you know, one or two sheep or something like that, right? Something small that they would have, maybe a goat. And the manger then was the place where these animals would eat. But what it was was in the bottom side, kind of at the end of the area where the family would be, between the family and the animals, there would be some sort of a, um, like, you know, rock or something like that. And they would cut into that rock, these little ovals, like these little bowls uh, into the ground. And so that's what the manger was. It was the bowl where the animals would like reach up and eat. And so with some fresh straw, this actually would have made a perfect crib in a pinch. It would have been very unusual, but it would have worked in a pinch. And there are some examples. So these kind of houses, there are examples of these all over scripture. Um, 
these kind of houses where you have animals living in the house with people. So one of them is Saul uh, in the book of Samuel. He visits the witch of Endor. And when he gets to the house, it says that she took a fatted calf. She's offering him food. I don't think he eats it. But it says the fatted calf was already in the house. So that's an example. Or there's the uh, story of the judge, Jephthah. And this guy was an idiot, and he makes this rash vow. He says, I'm going to sacrifice whatever comes out of the house. And in our culture, that seems really weird. But most likely, he was there early in the morning, and he expected animals uh, to come out of the house in the beginning of the day, right? You would let the animals out in the middle of the day. But what ends up happening is uh, his daughter comes out of the house, and he ends up sacrificing his daughter. Um, but you can see that same kind of house was used here. Or there's a spot in Matthew 5 where Jesus talks about lighting a lamp, and he says, you don't light a lamp or, you know, the lamp will light up the whole house, meaning the whole house is one big room. So it, it actually makes sense that Jesus was born probably in one of these houses. Uh, but what about the inn, right? It says, you know, because there was no room for them at the inn. Well, the common Greek word for inn uh, is uh, the word, let's see if I can say this right, pandakion, pandakion, something like that, I think. Anyway, it means like, that's the word that means hotel, something like uh, in the good, it's like in the Good Samaritan, where the guy takes him to the inn and he pays the thing, you know, and he leaves the the Samaritan there. I'm sorry, he leaves the injured guy. The Samaritan leaves the injured guy there. Uh, we would call it a commercial inn, a hotel, motel, something like that. But the word Luke uses here is uh, different. It's more like guest room. It's the Greek word katalima, uh, and um, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he's describing the upper room. It's the, the idea was uh, it was a guest room. And so some of these small village houses actually had the one big room and then a smaller room sort of at the top uh, that would have been a second room, like a guest room. And so I think more literally what it says is, you know, that Jesus was born and put in the manger and everything because there was no uh, room in the guest room. So uh, these people probably already had guests. And so do you see what's happening here? Joseph was a member of the royal house of David, and he had a lot of family in Bethlehem. And in coming to Bethlehem, the city was full because of the census. And he was taken in by probably distant family, family he didn't know real well. But the guest room where they had people was already uh, full, and they already had people put in the, the upper room, right, the guest room. So they put Mary and Joseph in the stables. And that was like the bottom part of the, the main room where the animals usually slept. And then they left the animals outside, right? Um, and that was good enough for Joseph. So remember, Bethlehem is close to Jerusalem. And we're told that Elizabeth and Zechariah lived in the, you know, the country just outside of Jerusalem. So they, they and baby John now, I guess, would be a few months old at this point. Um, so if the situation was really messed up, Mary and Joseph would have taken, uh, you know, uh, taken off and headed to stay with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, and, but it wasn't. And they stayed probably with his family and they were probably there a few days. Nothing says that she had the baby the night that they arrived. Um, and she had the baby, probably assisted by family members. Um, and uh, it was a pretty kind of a, um, well, I'll say Joseph wasn't an inept husband, the way he gets portrayed, I think, in a lot of the Christmas stuff, right? He had no way to provide, and they ended up having this baby in a barn and all this sort of stuff. And uh, Bethlehem wasn't full of heartless folks who refused to help. Mary didn't have the baby by herself, deliver the baby by herself in a cave or in a barn or something like that. Well, anyway, so I think that's really what's going on here. So what? Well, the idea is this. Uh, Jesus had a pretty normal-ish birth for these times, right? It was the normal way that kids were born. Mary screamed in pain. 
Uh, Jesus cried. He came out. He was all gooey and disgusting. She breastfed him while she was exhausted and tired. And this all happened while they were surrounded by family uh, and neighbors and that sort of stuff. It was all pretty normal. Well, from one perspective, it was pretty normal. Uh, but from another perspective, it was totally not normal. So this this passage is kind of broken up into two parts, right? The very normal birth of Jesus, how it happened. But then all these kind of supernatural things are also happening at the same time. So look at verse, uh, let's see, verse 8. Uh, we'll read now about the shepherds. And in the same region, so just outside of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. So in scripture, shepherds are usually portrayed in a positive light. The Lord is called a shepherd. You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, In that culture back then, though, that was not the case. Uh, People really despised shepherds. They were not considered, um, you know, it was kind of a lowly profession. Like in our culture, you know, think of like a used car salesman. No offense if you are a used car salesman, but right, you know the stigma, right, of, you know, the kind of tacky guy who's trying to take advantage of you. That's how people thought of shepherds. Now, Um, If you were God and you were planning your own birth and you were going to become a man and you wanted people to know it, you would go to a prominent doctor, business owner, you'd go to Walter Cronkite and you'd say, hey, everybody, this Jesus is going to be born and whatever. Um, You find people that everybody else trusted and you tell them to get the word out. But who are some of the first people that find out about Jesus's birth? We have Mary, a young girl who everybody thinks is immoral. We have Joseph, a poor carpenter who's married to this young immoral girl or getting married to this young immoral girl. We have the shepherds who are outcasts in society. We have the the wise men, the magi, who are foreign uh, priests uh, from a pagan religion. These are the people that Jesus himself chose for this to happen. Um, Who didn't God send this message to, right? The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, right? The good church people were not the ones who received this message. And this really is going to set the stage for Jesus's ministry in the whole book of Luke. His ministry was about bringing a physician to the sick. He was here to save lost sinners, and he was constantly in trouble, right, for eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. And he didn't come to enable self-righteous religious people. He came to save the lost. And that tone is set here even from his birth with these shepherds. And so we have these shepherds. What are they doing? Well, they're keeping watch over their flock. These guys were just blue-collar workers out working in the fields. And these shepherds in Bethlehem that we know actually had a special job. They were tending uh, to the sheep that would eventually, you know, Bethlehem was kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. And uh, it was less than six miles south of Jerusalem. And so these um, these uh, shepherds, what they were doing is they were taking care of the flock that was owned by the temple system. So these sheep were headed to go be the sacrifice Um, for the temple system in Jerusalem. Now, uh, just a quick sidebar. When was Jesus born? There's an actual, I think it's in the ESV study Bible. There's an article uh, you can go read about this. Many folks have said that since these, they were out here at night, uh, this couldn't have been the winter time uh, when Jesus was born. So why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Well, when the emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, what he did was he replaced a pagan holiday that was already on December 25th with the celebration of Jesus's birth. Now, does that mean Christmas is bad? No, we're not celebrating a pagan holiday. Uh, so when was Jesus born? Well, who knows? Nobody knows. That that thing about, well, it couldn't have been winter, I was reading, is actually probably not true. So there's a 1 in 365 uh, chance that he was born on December 25th. Maybe he was born on March 22nd. That's my birthday. I don't know. 
Uh, I don't think the exact date really is that important. If it was, one of the gospel writers would have written it down. Uh, They write down other dates and they write down other stuff, but they didn't write this down. So really, let's say, who cares, right? All right, now back to the shepherds. So we have them. They're out in the field. They're taking care of their lambs by the temple. In verse 9, it says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So let me just take a sidebar here real fast, real quick. You may be thinking, uh, you guys really believe in angels? This is that kind of church? Fat little babies playing the harp and singing on clouds and that sort of thing? Well, yes and no, right? The Bible talks about spiritual beings all around us, and we never see in the Bible a complete picture of what this spiritual world looks like. We just get quick glimpses here and there, and we try to put a picture together. So, Think about it, though. Is it really that far out there? If God created, which we believe, he created the whole universe, um, he created man, he created animals, and he guides it all by his hand. Um, If he became a man and rose from the dead, is it really that far out there then to believe that he also created other beings besides us? these angels. And that's what we believe. These angels are messengers of God. They work for God. And so this angel, he appears to these shepherds. And at first he was by himself, but he doesn't just look like some other dude, right? It says that the glory of the Lord uh, shone around him. Now, I like the ESV study Bible has a note here. It said the bright light describing the glory of the Lord. It's the bright light that surrounds the presence of God himself, sometimes appearing as a cloud, sometimes as a bright light, sometimes as a burning fire. Um, John Calvin, he says that this guy doesn't come down just like a normal guy because he really wants to wow these shepherds with his message so that they will realize what a big deal this is. And so these guys are out there, they're sitting around the campfire, they're telling dirty jokes and they're drinking and, you know, whatever. And uh, um, they're talking about, you know, whatever, something trivial, I don't know. And they're sitting around and all of a sudden this angel appears and he's surrounded by this light, the glory of God himself. And of course, it says that these uh, these shepherds then are filled with great fear, which is almost always the reaction to angels in scripture. People see them and they're freaked out. It happened when Zechariah met the angel first. It happened when Mary uh, met the angel Gabriel in chapter one. Think about it. Uh, they, they lose Uh, they lose it at the sight of something that God created. So what does that tell us about God himself? He is infinitely awesome. And I want you to keep that in your memory for now, because we're going to talk about that more in a sec, uh, just how big and great God is. And so this angel surrounded by the glory of God, uh, he says, fear not. This is what he tells him. Like the, the Greek grammar is actually stop being afraid. Stop what's already happening, right? And so he's trying to calm their fears so that he can then tell them, uh, uh, his message, his uh, the gospel, right? He says, and the angel, verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So uh, he says, fear not, behold, uh, is like a way of saying, check this out, listen up. Um, when you're really, it's something you say when you're really excited. And he says, look, I have good news. Um, and the good news is that he just saved a bunch of money on his car insurance by switching to Geico. No, I, uh, just kidding. I love that joke. Anyway, um, the good news is another, f- the word there is the word gospel. He says, I have this gospel for you. Um, now, the gospel story doesn't start here with Jesus, but this is one of the, ma- the, the incarnation is one of the major um, uh, plot points in the gospel story. It's one of the biggest uh, moments. The birth of Jesus means that the, this is all starting to happen, right? This is a huge moment in the history of the world. And this, this news will bring great joy right? Like, have you ever received really good news that just lit up your whole life? It's a boy. It's a girl. 
Uh, he's gonna make it. You've got the job. Yes, I'll marry you. The McRib is coming back, right? McDonald's is gonna serve breakfast all day. These are things that bring great joy to people. Well, this is just like that, but it's like that times a million. And what he says here, let's look carefully. He says, I have great joy, um, sorry, good news of great joy. And this is the key that will be for all the people. So at this point in history, the people of God weren't getting the hint. God wanted them, sorry, God wanted to use them uh, to take the gospel to the nations, but they mostly missed that message. They mostly sat on the good news. They huddled together and they ignored the mission that God had called them to. And in their minds, Gentiles were unclean and ungodly. They were icky and the religious establishment treated them like garbage. And one of the first messages about the ministry of Jesus is that his birth is going to be for all the nations, all different kinds of people. And that is that kind, that kind of unity um, is such a natural outworking of the gospel. And that message uh, now is super timely um, for churches. And we really need to press together into that truth, right? In a time where racial division is at the front of all of our minds, right? I'm recording this um, on uh, a day where tonight we have a curfew at eight o'clock because these riots are happening and people are upset and there's all this division. Um, the church should really be a place that looks like the kingdom. Like uh, I shared in a blog post that I wrote this week. If you haven't read that, go check that out on the website. Um, and while we're talking about this, I just want to make a quick plug for what we're going to be doing on Wednesday night. So Tim Keller wrote a book called um, uh, Generous Justice, and we're going to um, read this book together for eight weeks. Uh, and we're going to talk about it on our Wednesday night Zoom calls. And so if you need a copy of the book, let me know. Or if you need just the first chapter, we'll figure it out. Uh, let me know. But what I want to do is read this book together. And I want to talk about uh, how does our church take this seriously? What are we doing to, to live this truth and to press into the kingdom of God and to show the world that this really is what Jesus came to do, right? To break down these barriers and to unite people. Um, we really have a great opportunity to, um, to be this kind of a church, especially since we're early in our church plan, right? We're just getting started. And so we want to build this into the fabric, into our very DNA. Um, and so I encourage you, go find that book. It's by Timothy Keller. Read the blog post. There's a link to the book in there um, and check that out. And we're going to talk about that for the next 11 weeks. All right, back to um, the story here. Verse 11, the angel continues. He says, for unto you uh, is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So he says, unto you is born in the CSB, which is another translation I like, the Christian Standard Bible. It actually says, for you. So for you, the shepherds, the, imagine that, the unclean outcasts, the people that society looks down on. For you, uh, this day is born in the city of David. So again, it's that theme that Jesus is the king in the line of David. But look at what else happens. Look at the titles that are given to this baby, to this kid. There are three titles here. It says, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So the word Savior is a term that Mary had just used of God the Father in Luke chapter 1. And now the angels here are using it to describe Jesus. And it means exactly what it says, the one who saves. Um, in Zechariah's song, uh, he said this in Luke 1 also. He said, uh, verse 76, he said, You child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So Zechariah got it. He understood that this uh, kid was the one who was going to bring salvation for 
uh, the forgiveness of sins, the sin that has separated us from God. This kid, Jesus, is the Savior who has come to fix that. So that's the first title. The second title is he calls him the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus's last name, by the way. Um, the Greek, it's a Greek translation of the word Messiah, which is um, a word that just means um, like the anointed one, the promised king. Um, and Messiah is a word, you know, like the anointing was always done with oil. And I saw this hilarious thing on Reddit the other day. This is a complete sidebar where this guy said the word Messiah or Christ means anointed one. And, um, you know, the one anointed with oil. And Jesus is just another form of the name Joshua. So he was saying we should all start calling Jesus oily Josh. And I thought, I don't know, that's stupid, but I thought it was funny. Anyway, so the Messiah, right? He's the one who is anointed, like in the Old Testament, but to be the, not just a king, to be the savior of the world. And his coming was prophesied by the uh, prophets in the Old Testament. And the people of God, like we've been talking about, were eagerly awaiting the coming of this Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah. So he's the, the savior, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. And the third thing is he's the Lord. Now, this is a word that has multiple layers. There's levels here. It can mean Lord as in the boss or just the guy who's in charge, uh, but it can also be used to describe the Lord God. And in Luke, um, the word Lord is almost always referred to uh, God in this way. And so the second sense is how the angel is using it here. He is the Lord God. And so when you put this all together, this baby is the savior from sin, the promised Messiah, and he is the Lord God himself, God in the flesh. And so can you see then why the angel calls this message good news that brings great joy? This is a big deal what's happening here. God has come down. He has become a man and he is going to put the world back together. He's going to save all the nations from their sin. And he continues, he says, but look at this, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. So he says, if you don't believe me, just like he gave Zachariah a sign that you will be mute. And he gave Mary a sign. Go check out Elizabeth that she's pregnant. Here's a sign now for these shepherds. You're going to find a kid wrapped in swaddling cloths, right? Normal baby stuff. But you will find that kid lying in a manger. Now, there probably weren't a bunch of babies born that night in Bethlehem, this smaller uh, suburb of Jerusalem. Uh, but there definitely weren't very many kids lying in a manger, the feeding trough. So it would have been easy for them to find this baby. So verse 13, uh, verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there was this multitude of heavenly hosts. So this guy at first was just all by himself. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's all these other angels there. And host is a military term. So the heavenly armies of God, these angelic armies show up. Now think for a second about how one angel scared these shepherds. Now imagine an entire army of angels. There's thousands of them probably. And what were they doing? They were praising God. Now this word means more than singing, but that's often what it's referring to. Um, it's what you do when you're in awe of God and that just sort of praise flows out of you. And so now let's set the scene again, right? These shepherds, they're out there, they're eating beans out of a can, sitting around a campfire, when all of a sudden this angel shows up and they're terrified and he calms them down and he announces that he has good news, that this Savior, Christ the Lord, has been born and you should go check it out. He's in Bethlehem, you'll find him. Uh, he's the only baby that's lying in a feeding trough. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's thousands of angels and they're probably singing. It doesn't say singing, but they're probably singing praises to God because of this. Um, and that's what they're singing, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
peace among uh, those with whom he is pleased. So Handel in Handel's Messiah that I talked about in the intro uh, wrote a song based off of this verse, and it's probably my favorite part of Handel's Messiah, where the they're singing "Glory to God in the highest." So glory to God is just a way to give him the highest honor, right? He is everything, and he deserves to be worshipped. That's what it means in the highest, right? The, the um, uh, not like saying high up, but it's a degree of worship. Like the, the best worship is reserved for the Lord. Um, and it's not just worship here in Luke, right? This is an echo of what happens in Revelation, uh, in heaven, as we read in several spots in Revelation, like four and five, we read about in heaven, uh, these different folks are constantly surrounding the throne and they're falling down in worship. And so what's happening in heaven now is happening here on earth uh, with these angels. And so as they're singing and they're praising the Lord, there's this interesting phrase, on earth, peace among uh, whom, <laughs> that's a weird phrase, peace among whom he is pleased. Is that right? Wait, let me see. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. That makes more sense. It's wrong on my paper here or on my iPad. Anyway, the idea here of peace is one of the most misunderstood phrases. And um, we see this all throughout Christmas cards, right? When Jesus comes, there will be peace on earth. And people take that to mean, well, there'll be no more war or persecution. But the thing is, the church of God was persecuted horribly and still is today. And ever since Jesus was born, the world has been almost at war um, constantly, right? Continually. We've been at war all the time. Now, so what is he talking about? Well, it doesn't mean as soon as Jesus is born, there's going to be no more war. What he's talking about is the war with God and man. Our sin puts us at odds with God, and our sin is a declaration of rebellion, a declaration of war against God Almighty. But Jesus's death and resurrection brings us back into the fold. Uh, it brings that reconciliation. Paul put this perfectly in Romans 5. He said, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that's what the angels are singing about. They're singing praises because Jesus is coming to earth is the next step in the plan that will bring peace between God and mankind, right? Between mankind and their creator that we we have rebelled against. And so these angels, they're singing this song. The story continues um, in verse 15. And when the angels went away from them uh, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So the angels are done with their song. They take off. There's no encore. uh, And they take off back into heaven. And the shepherds say, all right, let's go check this out. How hard can it be to find a baby in in a manger lying in the feeding trough? So they went with haste, which means they took off. Um, uh, They hustled into town. One commentator put this, too. I thought this was interesting, and this is true. I'll bet one of these shepherds had to stay and watch the sheep, right? They didn't just take off and leave all the sheep to wander away. So I I don't know for sure, but anyway, I hate to be that guy. But the rest of them, they take off. They find Mary and Joseph. They get to town. It says they found him, which means that they were searching. Now imagine it. You're the shepherds, right? You come to the first house. It's nighttime, and you knock on the door, and somebody answers, peeks our face out, and you say, hey, I know this is going to sound weird, but do you guys have a baby in there lying in a feeding trough? No. You know, the guy says, no, slams the door. 
okay, thank you. And then you do that over and over again. And finally you come to one house and you knock on the door and somebody cracks the door open and, and you say to them, hey, I know this sounds weird, but do you have a, a baby in there lying in a feeding trough? And then the person says, we do. How did you know that? And so they go in and they, um, they see the baby. It's really amazing. Verse 17, when they saw it, uh, the baby lying in the manger, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. So they come inside, they see the baby, they make it known. They, they, they say, okay, look, you're not going to believe this, but we were out there, we were just doing our jobs, we're watching our sheep. And then all of a sudden, uh, this dude popped up and he was all lit up and I lost it. I was so freaked out. But he told us that your kid is the Savior, Christ the Lord. And then all of a sudden, all these angels popped up out of nowhere and they're singing this song and they're praising God. And they told us, hey, by the way, if you want to go see this baby, this is where he is. He's lying in a feeding trough somewhere in Bethlehem. And then Mary with a little smirk on her face, this teenage girl says to these shepherds, you think that's nuts? Let me tell you a story. She says, look, I was an unmarried virgin and this angel showed up and he said, I've got a job for you. And then Joseph tells his story and you think that's nuts. I was getting ready to divorce Mary. Um, and then an angel showed up and he told me, hey, I've got a job for you to do too. I need you to not divorce this girl. And it says that everybody wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Well, remember, they weren't in a cave by themselves, right? Like uh, the Christmas cards. Uh, there were people around and they were listening to this. Now, uh, imagine that you were one of these witnesses, right? You're a family member or somebody who's been called to help deliver this baby. You're just in the house when this all happens. And Mary and Joseph, when they showed up a few days earlier, they said, um, you know, hey, you know, we need a place to stay, blah, blah, blah. You took them in. But they're not even married yet. They're still just sort of engaged, which is more serious than our engagement, but not quite all the way married. And they've been betrothed now for a while, but they're not married. And Mary is nine months pregnant. And so you rush to judgment. But she tells you, no, 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 this baby's from God. This baby's going to be the Messiah. An angel told me so. You wouldn't believe her. You'd think she was lying to cover her sin. And then all of, so the whole time you're sitting there, she has this baby, you're secretly judging her. And then all of a sudden, some shepherds knock on the door and they say, hey, uh, is that the God baby in there? Um, because we want to take a look. And the, you would have been left stunned. And that's what happens here. Everybody that was around was left completely stunned. Um, verse 19, but Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary was not given the whole plan up front. She didn't know in what sense Jesus would be the Messiah. She didn't know about the cross. She didn't know what all of this meant exactly. And remember, she's probably still a teenager, the age of like a youth group kid. And uh, as all of this is happening, she is just soaking it in and she's meditating on what God is doing. And then the last verse, verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and... Um, uh, as it had been told to them. So the shepherds returned. We don't know how long they stayed. They probably stayed for a bit, chatted it up with Mary and Joseph, uh, you know, and then uh, took off. Now, can you imagine looking into that crib and seeing this, you know, the, the feeding trough and seeing this helpless baby and thinking this is the Messiah, right? This is the Savior. This is the Lord himself in the flesh. He just looks kind of like a regular kid, Right? I just watched Mary change his diaper, although they didn't really have diapers, but you know what I mean. Uh, but this is the humility that would have blown them away. God has become a man. And so they left um, 
they left this regular looking baby and they left him glorifying and praising God. And that's how the passage ends with the shepherds glorifying and praising God. Now look at the life of these shepherds. They were probably born into shepherd families and they lived their whole lives, looked down upon. People thought they were crooked and dishonest. And maybe they were, it doesn't really say. They never fit in with the religious people because um, they never had time to do all the temple stuff. And so they, the shepherds, we know, kind of had their, formed their own little community on the outskirts of Jewish society. And then when the long-awaited Messiah finally comes, the announcement comes to them, not to the Pharisees or to the scribes or the Sanhedrin, not to the chief priests. The announcement comes to these guys. God has humbled himself and become a man, and uh, he's here to save all of mankind from the consequences of sin. And so after meeting Mary and Joseph and the baby, these guys return praise with praise flowing out of their hearts, and they're telling everybody about what they had seen. And so that's the passage for today. And what I want you to see here is, do you see this tension in Luke's narrative? On the one side, we have such a normal birth. Uh, Jesus is born probably in a house surrounded by family, just like everybody else in that day. Uh, But on the other side, right, this was so divine. There's angels singing his praises and calling him God and the Savior and the Messiah and all this stuff. And that's going to be the tension that we're going to read about in Jesus's whole life and ministry. So the question for us then is how do we react to this story of a divine baby being born? Right. There's a handful of ways that we could sort of tackle this passage and different things that we could do. Uh, But I want to look specifically for a minute just at the the behavior of the shepherds. And they have three things here um, that I think that as people of God, we can emulate. So the first thing is that they acted in faith. So once they heard about Jesus, they ran to him. Now, isn't that the gospel story? The gospel call is run to Jesus in faith. Um, There's this misconception about Christianity that everything is about what you do for Jesus. Like I behave a certain way and then God will love me. But that's actually backwards. Christianity is about what Jesus has already done for you. He was born so that he could grow up and die, so that you could come home, so that you could come back to God. You could be reconciled like Paul talked about in Romans. And if you're watching this and you're not a believer, my encouragement to you is to continue to read the book of Luke with us um, and believe this in faith that Jesus really is this Messiah and come to Jesus in faith and receive um, the salvation that this baby uh, is offering, that this, this Messiah is offering. So that's the first thing, right? They acted in faith. The second thing, though, is these shepherds were people of worship. They worshiped just like the angels. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen uh, as it had been told to them. The Christian life is one of worship. Once you're saved by grace and by putting your faith in Jesus, how can you help but worship? And that's what happened here. When the shepherds saw Jesus and who Jesus was, they busted out in worship. Think about it. God became a man so that he could represent us and pay the price for our sin. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, But... And, and the, the, the outworking of that then is to praise and to worship him. But we don't just, that's sort of the taking in of the story. We don't just do that. That's not the end. The second thing is they shared the gospel in verse 18, right? And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. So like I said, we don't know exactly who the shepherds shared this story with, but we can see that they shared the story. And sharing your faith should never come out of a sense of duty. You should love Jesus so much that you can't help but share your faith, right? You share the faith when you've experienced the love of God and you've been blown away 
to the point where you have to tell somebody. That's what evangelism is really all about. And so those are the three things, right? They acted in faith. They lived lives of worship. They came to Jesus in faith, uh, trusted in grace, right? They lived lives of worship, and then they told other people about it. And that's a chain that I think really illustrates the Christian life well. Act in faith and see Jesus. Be blown away by his grace to the point where the worship bubbles up and flows out of you, and then tell somebody else about it. And that's what I would love for our church to be, right? The kind of church that practices those three things, faith, worship, and sharing the gospel with other people because uh, we love the world around us. Amen? Let's pray.